0: Hey there, I'm Stevie Manns, a musician from New York City and the host of This Next Songs About. This is a podcast for songwriters and music fans, of course, and in this podcast, I take you behind the scenes for a closer look at how musicians write their songs, and I also try to uncover some of the secrets of the industry with music experts from across the nation. Now, I have been on a little hiatus for a while. There is a new season on the way, I'm taking a little break over the holiday and I will be back with some incredible episodes from some lovely, wonderful, thoughtful, smart musicians, industry experts, and just people that I think you would love to hear from. I have a ton of guests coming up and I really can't wait to share them with you. But until then, I wanted to share this special episode with you that I recorded with Gretchen Peters. I am a big, long-time fan of Gretchen Peters, and this episode, I think, was recorded in November of 2019. Gretchen was coming up to do a show in New York City at Rockwood Music Hall, and uh, we subsequently met and had a photo taken afterwards, which is quite funny because I was totally fangirling. I think I forgot to put the flash on my phone, and the subsequent photo was very awkward and very funny. Um, And Gretchen is so lovely and was so graceful. This conversation was one of my favourites and I just wanted to uh, put this back in your feed in case you haven't listened to it. She's an incredible songwriter. She's been inducted into the Nashville Songwriters Hall of Fame. She has a Grammy nomination. She is such a prolific songwriter. And in this conversation, we talk about one of her songs, The Boy From Rye, and she discusses its importance on her album. I really hope you enjoy this conversation. So sit back and relax, and let me introduce you to Gretchen Peters. Gretchen Peters, welcome to this next song's about. Thank you. It's good to be with you. Thank you. It is such a pleasure to talk to you. Um, as we we had a little chat before we started, and. I, I sort of fangirled a little bit. Um, I've been a big fan of yours for a number of years, so this is a real pleasure for me, and I'm so excited to talk about one of your songs.
1: Absolutely, I love the format. I love focusing on one song. It's great.
0: Thank you. Well, tell you what, let's. Uh, I, I have so many questions, but um, why don't we uh, dig into the song, and then you know we can talk a lot more about your career. I literally have two pages of questions that I want to go through. <laughs> we'll get there. It doesn't. It's not that daunting. I promise. But you, uh, when I asked you which song you wanted to to talk about today you picked The Boy From Rye from your latest album, Dancing With The Beast. Yes. And I thought it was such an interesting choice. So firstly, I I wanted to ask you, you know, why you picked this song in particular.
1: This song felt, um, for me personally, when I was writing it, it felt important and big. I knew as soon as I had the idea for the song, I knew that I really wanted to say, I had things to say, on the subject, but also that it would be really tricky. It's really a song about what happens in that moment for young girls in adolescence when they sort of go from being the subject of their own lives to the object of their own lives. They start to realize that they are, as as girls, as they become, you know, on the cusp of being women, they become judged from the exterior, judged by their male counterparts and judged by other girls and by themselves most of all and it's a very tricky and i think really treacherous part of of a of a girl's childhood and really interesting too and i wanted to really explore a couple things that idea plus the idea that girls are sort of conditioned a lot of times to To And it's kind of a shock for me, it was at that age anyway, to realize that you're suddenly in competition with the people who were your best friends. Like Mm -hmm. suddenly there's this element of competition. And for a lot of us, that was a very uncomfortable thing and ended up, I think for a lot of women, it ended up taking years and even sometimes decades to realize that women... are our best allies in many cases. So there, there's just so many layers to it, and it, it, and that's what I mean by it. Seemed very big. It was a very big idea, and I love those kind of songs. But I also know from experience that they're, they're very tricky. And and with this one, I just felt like, oh, I really have to get this one right. And I feel like I did with this song. I, I felt a deep sense of satisfaction having written it because I felt like it captured that time in. My life and lots and lots of other women's lives when they are in that kind of fragile in between place when they start to realize that they maybe are not seen as being the captains of their own ship anymore.
0: Mm-hmm. I find it interesting, and and I I applaud you for the fact that you've done this album and you've largely focused it around women and and women's experiences in the wake of you know twenty seventeen and and the Me Too movement and for me I think the heart of this your your album is this song because you've gone almost to the moment that toxic masculinity becomes really apparent and impacts you
1: right I've actually said the very words that you just said um on stage introducing this song I I mean I feel like um there is always this point when I'm making an album when I kind of come out of this this murky phase of, you know, where am I going? What does this all mean? The songs don't really hang together as a piece. They, what is the theme of this album? And then somehow, somewhere, a song will appear that says, okay, this is the heart, this is the centre of this record and everything emanates from this. And for me, this was that song for, uh, for the Dancing with the Beast album.
0: It's so delicately handled, Which is beautiful, and and I I hark back to Independence Day from you know the early '90s, and that in itself was a really interesting time and a very almost you know it was was a controversial song to release on country country radio, and now you know we're in a different era where we can sort of explore these themes with a bit more comfort. But at the same time, I'm you know how how do you feel that these songs are being received at this time?
1: It's a weird thing. I mean, it's like there's there's certainly more freedom to say what we want and need to say, but there is, there's kind of a, a deafness, a a sort of cultural deafness against it. I mean, and this persists in things like uh, women being called female authors or female singer songwriters or female this or that. I mean, it's almost as if, and this has been going on a long time, but it's almost as if we are ghettoized because we are automatically written off as having uh, interest only to f- other females. And so I feel more freedom to talk about what it is like to be a girl and to be a woman in my songs. But I've mm-hmm. I've kind of always pushed for that. I mean, I Independence Day is a great example of a song that I wrote feeling absolutely positive that no one would ever record it and it would never see the light of day. So I just, I just wrote it because I had it inside me and I wanted to get it out,
2: Mm -hmm.
1: you know, and now, uh, you know, fast forward 25 years, I have the wherewithal to release any song I want on my own label, on my own record, but there is a much, much higher wall that women have to scale to even get their voices heard now. And, and my, you know, the, my, I guess one of the proofs of that is the fact that when my first record came out in 1996, I was hearing uh, things from when I, when I went on my radio tour, my label sent me out on a radio tour, I was hearing, well, we can only play one woman an hour
2: mm-hmm.
1: on our station. And I thought that was bad. And I thought that maybe we had made some progress in 25 years. But now it's worse, I think. On, uh, certainly for, for young female artists on country radio, it's worse, so we really haven't gone forward. We've gone backward, and I think I think that the effect is, sure, say whatever you want to say. you know, we have the internet, we have there are all kinds of platforms. but the the real question is, who's listening mm. and, and and how can you be heard? And is there an, a level playing field for those things like radio and you know, press, print, all of that? And I don't think that there is. And I think that women still, are kind of relegated to this corner of women's art, uh, and that is something I hope I live to see
0: change. And this album is a, a real testament to that. You're, I think, you're absolutely right in terms of the way that it's probably it's it's worse for women now, and I think also the beauty standard is a lot worse for women now.
1: I think so, and you know, when you, when, you know, when I think about an album like Dancing with the Beast, I, I'm uh, the biggest compliment I ever get is when men come up to me and say, "I found so." Much to identify with and empathize with in this album, I I just feel like, well, glory hallelujah, you're a human being. I mean, I've I've grown up. Uh, you know, I started reading when I was four years old, and I identified with tons of male characters. I, I identified with Tom Joad in The Grapes of Wrath. I mean, I I read so many books that were based around male characters and loved them and also female characters. And I you know, it didn't it never occurred to me that that I would only empathize or identify with one gender. And and I think it's ridiculous, obviously on its face, to say that well, men aren't interested in women's stories. Because I see men in my audience, you know, lots of them. But this is just something that's sort of overhanging our patriarchal culture, this idea that we we really have to get rid of. Um, because unless we present art about women to everyone and tell boys it's cool to read books about girls, you know, when they're little kids, then we're never, ever going to get past this.
0: Yeah. Yeah. It's that, it's that sort of idea of toxic masculinity, the patriarchy and having men embrace femininity and feminine energy that is a part of them and that it's not something that is weak that it's actually a strength that it's a power for them to understand um and a lot of men do as you say who come to your shows and who 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 get it and who are already on board with that message it's wonderful that you have you have taken that to an album and really embraced that that movement in you know through through your art i,
1: I love i love the women i love the characters uh i mean i mean i feel you know re- re- Performing that album every night, I, I feel like I'm surrounded by sisters. I, I've, I, most of my characters that I write, I end up growing to love because they sort of ap- they make themselves known to me and they appear and they they talk and they they be, they become real and um, but especially with this album, I just feel like um, I just I, I feel like I, I'm surrounded by a really great group of sisters every night.
0: Well, tell you what, um, let's take a listen to The Boy from Rye, and then we can have a, a further chat about uh, more of your career. <laughs>
2: With his parents and his sister where the summer lawns roll down to the sea, and the air is softer than a whisper the girls from school in a
0: So Gretchen, that was the boy from Rye. I love the the instrumentation on that. You definitely get that feel that we are looking back in time just from the instrumentation. So, I, and I know that that tie, that sort of passing of time ties into the theme of the album.
1: Yeah, I I, th- I really have to give a lot of credit to my um, husband Barry Walsh for that in- incredibly evocative piano on that track. Barry and I have been playing music together for 29 years this year. And I think that the reason that I gravitated towards his playing all that time ago is because he quite obviously listened to the lyrics. Not every musician does that. I mean, there are many, many brilliant musicians that play wonderfully, but don't necessarily clue into the lyrics. And he really did. And it's just that piano part just moves me every time I hear it.
0: Mm, it's beautiful I've seen you perform with Barry a number of times and, and I've, I think I've only ever seen you perform when you've been married but that there's such a connection musically as well on stage and it's wonderful
1: yeah we've, we've only been married nine years but we've been playing together 29 years and I always people say wow well, you you just seem to be joined at the hip like you seem to have some kind of like psychic groove that you're in musically and I always say well you know music was our first language for 20 years so there's it's no big surprise
0: <laughs> um, but originally you, so you are from upstate New York, and you moved to to Boulder, and then on to Nashville.
1: Yeah, I was actually from. I was actually not from Upstate. I was from uh, Westchester County, New York. Ah, okay. My dad worked in the city, and so we lived in the suburbs. And I lived there until I was thirteen,
0: and then on to Boulder,
1: and then Boulder, Colorado. My parents were divorced when I was eight, and eventually my mom took me, and we moved to Boulder, Colorado, which was a complete change of pace uh, it couldn't have been more different from Westchester but it was a great place to be a teenager because there for a lot of reasons but Boulder in the 70s had a remarkable music scene and to be just to watch that to grow up from pretty much my mid-teens on I I uh, was going out to see shows and I saw a lot of different artists my, even my mom when I was way too young to get into clubs and bars would take me out cuz she knew how important it was to me she sounds like sounds like a, a mother that The truant officer would go after, you know, she took me (laughs) to bars when I was 13, but she just knew how important the music was to me. So she'd take me to see anybody I wanted to see.
0: And when you were 19, um, I I read somewhere that that was what launched your career in that you won a song contest that wasn't really a song contest on on the local radio.
1: Yeah, it wasn't meant to be a song contest. They just they had this uh, radio station that asked all the local musicians, of which there were hundreds. Um, To just send in their tapes and they were just going to have a whole weekend of playing nothing but local music. And I just recorded something in my friend's basement thinking, oh, they'll never play it on the radio. And it won the, the weekend. It really wasn't a contest, but then they decided, hell, why not? I guess. I don't know but uh, but it it, all of a sudden I had built-in gigs you know I had offers to play at clubs around town and I got a band together and it just enabled me to do all the things I wanted to do and that was it for me I mean I was dabbling at going to college but I lasted a year and I just I said this is what I want to do
0: that's incredible I mean to think that local radio DJs would would do that I think now it's almost unheard of it's it's the idea that you know unknown music is a turn-off for for people who are listening.
1: Absolutely and it's a real testament to how Boulder what a great town it was at that moment because you know live music was so supported there and people you know people followed their favorite bands around and everybody it was there was a lot of enthusiasm for it. It was a very uh, fertile and healthy musical environment to grow up in.
0: And when you moved to Nashville I I also read that you Got a publishing deal within three months of moving there.
1: I did. I had made two trips before I moved. I'd made uh, like t- I I took a week each time and slept on a friend's couch and just took my tapes around. They were they were tapes back then. <laughs> and so I'd made a, I'd made a couple inroads, but I just I found one publisher that was I don't know. This is it's such a it's such a talent to be someone who can recognize that someone is going to write a great song, but they haven't yet? Because I certainly hadn't. I mean, I certainly was just figuring it all out, but he heard something in me, and I don't know what, and signed me to a publishing deal uh, within three months of my arriving here. So I was, at that point, a professional songwriter, which is really thrilling and exciting and also terrifying, because suddenly I was receiving a check, which meant, oh God, this is real. I actually have to produce you know, songs, but it, it was it was mostly thrilling.
0: In terms of the way that you were writing it before you got the publishing deal and then after when you got the publishing deal, you know, when you are published and you become a songwriter, a lot of people don't necessarily understand that, you you know, technically it's a nine to five. You will go in, you'll have a co-writing session or you'll have a writing session and be expected to come out with songs. Was that how you had been working up until that point?
1: No, not at all. I was sitting on my bed, writing songs all by myself. And when I got the publishing deal, I tried going into the publishing company every day and I tried co-writing and I tried writing what I was hearing on the radio and none of it worked. And I was still sneaking out these little songs that I'd write all by myself in my bedroom, sitting on my bed. But I thought, you know, if, if they're paying me to write songs, I better try to come up with something like what I'm hearing on the radio and finally, my publisher, who was a very wise and intuitive and, like I said, talented at what he did, he just took me aside and he said, stop all this nonsense. If co-writing doesn't work for you, stop co-writing. You don't have to come in every day. If what if what helps you to write a song is getting in your car and driving to Florida, go do that. All I want from you is songs. And I And I like the ones right now that you're writing by yourself better than the ones that you're... Co-writing. Co-writing for me was all, always excruciating. I, I don't do much of it now. I, I, I don't really like it. And I've I've had to come to grips with the fact that in a co-writing town, I'm just a solo writer, pretty much, with a few exceptions. But he saw that in me. He saw that I was struggling with it. And I, 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 do, I really wonder where I would be now if he hadn't said, look, it's okay to just go be yourself. Because I started having success after he told me that I could do that. I started writing more of those songs by myself. I started, I, you know, I set up my little songwriting office on my bed in my bedroom instead of feeling like I had to go to a cubicle or a publishing company and sit there all day. And that's really when things started happening for me.
0: Mm-hmm. And your first song was cut by George Jones?
1: George Jones. Talk about a way to start. I mean, that's yeah. there's nowhere to go but down from there.
0: Well, then you had George Strait. Yeah, yeah.
1: (laughs) Then the George Jones song was my first cut, but it was not a single. The George Strait song, which I think was cut maybe a year later, went straight to number one, which uh, at that point, all of George Strait's songs went to number one. But it was it was quite it was quite a ride. And I kind of thought, oh, well, if you get a single, it goes to number one. Well, that's not true. (laughs) which I learned subsequently but it was it was quite a ride that first one
0: yeah I bet so you you mentioned earlier that you're a a big movie fan and that's how you visualize songs you know what what caused you to come to that realization that that's how you like to think of characters and how you how you like to write your songs
1: well I've always been a huge movie fan I get a lot of creative juice from movies uh, books books as well but I love the visual arts. Um, I love the visual nature of movies. And, and I, I tell my songwriting students this all the time. You have to think of your song as a movie. What does it look like where you are? Tell me what the scenery looks like. Tell me what's going on. And I just, I think I did that instinctually, but I think uh, upon reflection, I realized that my songs are very visual. I think of them as little movies and I think about things like where the lens of the camera is in the song at any given moment. Is it on a very, very small detail or is it, you know, at some other point in the song, it might be panned out to a really big picture and it moves constantly. And I think thinking of songs in that way, I think that's part of what makes them magical for people because we all create our pictures inside of our heads when we listen to our favorite songs. I just do it while I'm writing them. I think that's one of the reasons I never really took to music videos very much is because I love I love the way a song gives me my own kind of movie that plays in my head.
0: Mm-hmm. I know, it's just, you know, on YouTube and stuff, you have you have a few lyric videos. And I feel like for some of the songs that you have those for, it's, those are some of the more poignant songs where you can allow somebody to, to have their own vision.
1: I love lyric videos. First of all, I'm, 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 I'm a borderline obsessive on words anyway. So the idea that I could visually look at the words while they're going by is just my idea of heaven, but lyric videos. Yeah. To me, they don't get in the way the way. Now, having said that, there are some brilliant videos and uh, it is a challenge. I guess my, my real pet peeve about videos in general is when they're too literal I really, I don't love that. I'd much rather see, if we're going to have a visual component to a song, I'd much rather ha- see something that evokes it but doesn't literally follow the storyline.
0: I know that one one that you had, I think, was the one that you co-wrote with, I think it might have been Patrice Berg, um, Arguing with Ghosts. That was a very interesting video. And to your point, I think you allowed the visual to, to help evoke the emotion, but you don't exactly tell the story within that. Exactly. I mean, I think that was
1: that video was, it's one of my favorites that I've ever made and it's it's very um, it's very evocative and the and the, the characters are really compelling in the video, but it's not tal- it's not sort of repeating the action of the song, which just seems to it's all that does to my mind is just insult the listeners' intelligence, really. If if you have to see the story, then that means I haven't told you the story well enough.
0: And in terms of your, your you telling the story and and the songwriting, and and you've mentioned as well that you know the devil's in the detail in terms of the lyrics and setting up you know almost the the arc of the story within three to five minutes. and yet you still manage to kind of get those really subtle details that paint that picture. Very, very quickly. And and you know, I've seen it in a lot of the songs that you've written, like Circus Girl and Nobody's Girl and Disappearing Act, and all, you know, all of them. Is that something that you teach your students as well?
1: It is, and I think the thing that that is easy to miss is that the details are actually shorthand. Putting the details in the songs actually allows you to take up less time. A, a telling detail about a character gives you all the information that you need about who they are. The the example that I always use with my students is when we're talking about detail is the Chris Christopherson song, Sunday morning coming down. I woke up Sunday morning with no way to hold my head. That didn't hurt. And the beer I had for breakfast wasn't bad. So I had one more for dessert. I mean, how much do you know about this guy (laughs) in two lines and that's that's the thing. I think people think, well, if I focus on the details, I, I won't be able to get my whole story in. But here you've just done Christofferson's just done a whole character sketch in two lines. So details are actually the key to that very short form that is the popular song.
0: There's one other writer I'm I'm such a fan of at the moment, Brandy Clark. She's also, you know, she's able to do that as well, and and the humor that I think she manages to to tie into it, as well as as bringing in so much detail in a very short space of time, is is phenomenal to me.
1: She's a great writer. She's um, she's a classically great songwriter. She would have been a great songwriter, and and t- people would have taken notice of her in Nashville thirty years ago or fifty years ago. Or she's timeless. Her approach to writing. I actually asked. When I was inducted into the Songwriting Hall of Fame, I asked Brandy to, to induct me to sing, not to induct me, but to sing uh, my songs. Uh, it was Trisha Yearwood and Brandy Clark, because Brandy, I identified with her in a way. She, here was a young, up and coming songwriter that I recognized a little bit of myself
0: in. No, for sure. I mean, she's she, she's incredible. And as you say, you were not you were inducted into the Nashville Songwriters Hall of Fame in 2014 by Rodney Crowell introduced you
1: yes yes
0: that must have been an amazing experience for someone like that
1: it was it was incredible Rodney actually has presided over two very important events in my life he inducted me into the hall of fame but he also married my husband and me in 2010 (laughs) so I when when the when the songwriting hall of fame thing came up I thought well Rodney did a Great job at the wedding. Maybe he could officiate at this too. And it was it was lovely to have him because he has been one of my heroes for a long, long time.
0: One thing I also wanted to ask you: so you're an independent artist. I think there was there was a, a one album I believe that you released on a on a major label. But um, I think it's incredible that you've had so much success and you're owning your distribution. As an independent artist, I think in this climate, it's so difficult to do that. How how has your career felt different doing it by yourself versus the desire that a lot of people have to, you know, get onto a major label?
1: I didn't enjoy being on a major label. I I realized that uh, there were a lot of assumptions that I had made about the music that I made for them that were not true. I I didn't really realize that I didn't own it, that I had no control over it. Um, And I, uh, you know... uh, I was I was naive, of course, but I also assumed that that wouldn't really matter to me. And then when the record doesn't work and the label goes south, then you realize how much it really does matter. When you realize things like, wait a minute, I can't even like press up some copies of this and sell it on the road, like it's just out of print forever. This is of course long before the days of streaming. Things like that really opened my eyes. So I really uh, I was a really early Adapter. I went independent in the year 2000, which was pretty early, because I just didn't ever want to be in the position where I couldn't decide what happened with my music, where I couldn't, you know, I just wanted to own it. I, th- I felt like the only proper thing f- is for an artist to own their own work, license it, sure, sign distribution deals or whatever kind of deals you want to, but owning the masters is really important to me. And so, um, and I won't lie, it's a lot of work and I've had to really educate myself on s- so many different subjects that I sort of wish I wasn't so educated on. <laughs> but, um, but the payoff is I operate under my own steam. I do what I want to do. I, I make the records I want to make. Nobody's there to tell me, you can't put that out or you can't say that or, you know, any of that. And I, I'm able to find uh, team members that I want to work with I mean, I mean, every album release takes a pretty big team, but I can pick and choose those people. It's not a record label who says this is the this is the radio promoter you're working with. This is the publicist you're working with. You know, I I get to do that. And to me, that's there's no one who cares as much about your music as you do. And that feels like the only way to go for me. It is exhausting and you have to be super organized. I will say that that is the downside.
0: Mm And you have, you know, you've got such a great fan base, obviously, in the States and the UK and and Germany as well.
1: I am so grateful, especially for my UK fan base. I started touring early and often there. I mean, when my first record came out and it didn't do well over on this side of the Atlantic, a friend of mine, actually, who was playing in Nancy Griffith's band said, you should go to the UK. They'll get you. They'll understand. They'll, They'll love you. And I went over and did a very small tour, I think, you know, four dates or something, and playing for 40 people maybe and fast forward you know 20 something years and we're playing you know the last London show we did there were a thousand people there and it's just been it's been a that's a long time on the one hand and a lot of work and a lot of tours but on the other hand I pinch myself sometimes and and I feel this bond with that audience there's just something about the way that they took to me and the way that I took to them that really it's so meaningful to me because really frankly there were a lot of years when I wasn't doing any touring in the states and I I just couldn't get a foothold so having that audience over there really meant the world to me
0: and I love there's a song that you you uh the England blues yeah I yeah, that's that kind song. of my love song to them. <laughs> oh, it was, it was it's I mean it's fun and it's it's a great song as well, but um I I love that you've obviously you you really care about it and I think that comes through with that song.
1: I I absolutely do. I'm so I mean we have a lot of friends over there over the, you know, the course of all these years and and uh I I'm just I really feel um so grateful to them for the support and every time I go back, I think Thank God you guys are here because I would have probably stopped recording sometime in the mid 2000s if this hadn't been here for me.
0: Well, that's wonderful. And um, what a travesty that would have been.
1: Well, I certainly am glad that I got the chance to make the last, especially the last three albums that I've made. Because I'm proud of those three. I'm proud of all of them, but I'm really proud of those three.
0: I mean, they're, they're all great. I mean, I, as I say, I've been a fan for a number of years. i I was also interested to hear that you, you know, as we've mentioned that you know you teach songwriting classes and you you have students. And you know what what was it that kind of led you to to do that, and how has that experience been for you as a songwriter to kind of give back but also learn from those students?
1: Well, I was kind of led kicking and screaming into that. I didn't really want to do it. I didn't really believe you could teach songwriting. And I actually still don't exactly believe you can teach anyone to write a song, but I do believe you can really illuminate the process for people who are writers. And the big surprise, it, really, it's been the big surprise of my career, how much I love teaching. The big surprise for me was how much I learn about what my own songwriting process is through trying to convey it to them. I mean, I, I sort of I feel like the act of teaching gives shape and form to the thing that I do that was largely intuitive and largely uh, unexamined until I had to examine it to present it to my students. So I've I've kind of learned about things like, oh, you know, this is what I do when I'm lost and I can't figure out what the next verse needs to be or when I can't find this character's voice or uh, all these things. I've kind of... Been able to explore that with my students and figure out, okay, this is the, there is a process that I go through every time, and uh, it's been really, really, really gratifying. I love teaching. I'd, I'd never imagined that I would be end up doing this, but I love it.
0: I know you, you do it all over. You're, in fact, you said you were heading to the UK. You're doing one in, in a castle in Aberdeenshire next year. Yes,
1: that's going to be a very special one um, at the end of May. I, I normally do my three-day workshops um, in Nashville, but every once in a while, a special opportunity like this one comes up. You can't turn that down.
0: No, Aberdeen. is lovely. It's it's cold, and it's it's lovely. I was at university up there.
1: I've actually played there. Um, it, I've, I think I've played everywhere in the UK, everywhere in Scotland, everywhere in Wales. And um, but yes, it's it's going to be beautiful. And of course, the setting is so evocative. Who knows what'll what'll come up for these students and for me?
0: Yeah. Do you find that you kind of do a lot of writing yourself on these uh, retreats, or? Yeah.
1: Well, I don't. I don't always, but I did actually, uh, I did one of these, uh, workshops in a destination. The last time was in 2015 in Tuscany. I assigned an exercise to my students, uh, and it was about detail. Actually, we were in this kitchen in this villa where we were staying and I told them to write a song about what they were seeing and smelling and feeling and, you know, everything in the kitchen. And I uh, thought, well, I'll do the exercise myself because I should. And I wrote this lyric out, almost a complete song lyric, tucked it away and didn't look at it for two years. And I pulled it out and realized, oh, my God, this is really a good lyric. And I just put it out on a vinyl single a couple of months ago. So occasionally something pops out of those writing exercises even.
0: Well, I do have one final question, and this is more of a fun question. And I, I like to ask my interviewees what they're listening to. So kind of back in the day when we had, you know, the, the iPod, if you will, and I know that you'll remember the days when we had cassettes and stuff, but it doesn't quite work with cassettes. But on your iPod, what might be the the top three songs that would be the, the most listened to tracks for you right now?
1: Oh, well, God, it's this is embarrassing, but the, the number one track <laughs> <laughs> that's listened to on my uh, imaginary iPod, would be this eight-hour album called Somnium, because I can't go to sleep without it at night. <laughs> so I often think <laughs> about. It. I often think about. It. Well, if if you substitute iPod for for uh, Spotify, uh, my most played song on Spotify is this eight-hour album called Somnium. But we can probably we can probably uh, disregard that one. Um, okay. I've been listening to. I I go back to this album periodically. Um, every few years and listen to it again and again because I cannot get it out from under my skin and that's Blood on the Tracks by Bob Dylan. I've been listening to to that album a lot lately. Um, there's a band from Ohio that I just adore called Over the Rhine and um, they're a husband and wife. They've They've been at it for a long, long time and they make exquisite music. I I love all their albums, but because of the time of year, I've been listening to their Christmas album, which is it, it, this sounds, it's not a, it's not a typical Christmas album. Let me just put it that way. It's very dark and moody and you could listen to it any time of the year. So I would say Over the Rhine, probably number two. Um, What else have I been listening to a lot? Well, I've been listening to my, I've got a new record coming out in May and I've Frankly, I've been listening to that just to check the mixes and the masters and the press copies, you know, the vinyl. In fact, today I'm going to check out the uh, test pressing of the vinyl version of this. So I've been listening to a lot. It's an album of Mickey Newberry songs. So I have been listening to a lot of Mickey Newberry lately just because my own versions of his songs and also I've just been revisiting um, some of his own versions as well
0: so you are coming to new york and you're you're doing a couple of shows in december so december 8th i believe you're at rockwood musical that's right i'm excited for that one and you've got another i think it's a house concert as well
1: on the 7th of december yeah are,
0: is, is that being advertised or is
1: um it's it's not on my website it's it's catherine's space which i think a lot of new yorkers know it's on the lower east side and um it will f- be full i think it usually fills up but it's uh If you're on Catherine's mailing list and you go to her house concert, I will be there on December 7th. Otherwise, come down to Rockwood because that's
0: going to be really a fun show. Yeah, it's it's a it's a wonderful stage. I play there quite a lot. And we do our songwriters nights there, actually. Um, And your new so your new record is coming out next year, May 2020. It's coming out May 15th. It's called The Night You Wrote That Song and
1: it is a, an, an album full of Mickey Newberry songs. Uh, he was one of my earliest songwriting heroes and I'm, I've had this in my mind to do for at least 15
0: years and I finally got around to it. That's great and uh, if anyone wants to check you out your, your, your website actually is really detailed. I love how you've got all of your song lyrics there.
1: Yeah, that's important to me. You know, people want to know what the lyrics are. And um, I, I, I'm a lyrics freak. I, you know, back in the days of albums, that was the first thing I did was crack the album open and look at the words. So I yeah. I just feel like that's
0: important to me and it must be important to lots of other people too. Yeah, it's it's wonderful. I'm so glad you do it. I don't think there are enough people that do. Um, so so thank you for that. And thank you so much for your time today. I've, I've really enjoyed uh, this, this chat. It's been wonderful. And I'm, again, so excited to see you on December 7th, December 8th. Yes, we'll be there. Awesome. Gretchen Peters, thank you so much. Thank you. The incredible Gretchen Peters. Oh, I love that interview. If you do want to see that awkward photo I mentioned at the start of this episode, you can go to my Instagram and probably scroll back far enough. You can find me at Mans. I do hope you enjoyed that bonus episode. I might drop one or two more before the new season comes out. But in the meantime, please check out previous episodes. There is a plethora, love that word, of old uh, episodes that you can check out to your heart's desire. Find some new music, get some inspiration and get back to songwriting. I have put a link in today's episode for a couple of Shure microphones. We are now a Shure affiliate, don't you know? Which is very exciting for me. I'm a fan of the Shure MV7 and Shure have even given me one to give away next season. So make sure that you follow and subscribe to this podcast wherever you get your podcasts. I wish you a wonderful, relaxing, energizing holiday season. I'm Stevie Manns.